Uh, tonight, these are the three things we're going to talk about. Our thoughts have consequences. Our thoughts need a filter, and our thoughts need food. So our thoughts have consequences. They need a filter, and they need food. And we'll explain what this means in just a minute. But one last time, why don't you stand up out of respect for God's word, and uh, we'll read this, and then we'll talk about it. Paul kind of continues his train of thought from uh, what we've been talking about the past few weeks. Speaking to Christians in particular, it applies to everybody. See to it, or be careful, make sure that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, not in these other things, but in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, you have already been filled in him. He who's the head of all rule and authority. And in him also, we're going to explain this word, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands by putting off the body of flesh, but by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, he set it aside. He nailed it to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is a passage that has some words in it and some phrases that uh, we're not used to. We don't talk this way. Help us to understand what you're speaking to us tonight. You're not a God who spoke one time and then just lets people gather together, read your stuff like it's antique, but you're the God who continues to speak. You're the God who knows where we are. And so whenever you speak to us, it has the right address on it. You don't misdeliver the mail. So, Father, tonight we are at very different places, each of us, stressed, tired, forgetful, excited, passionate, dull, bored, confused. Jesus, tonight would you meet each of those people where they are? Tonight would you show us yourself again? Let us rediscover you the way we talked about last year. Let us build our house, our lives upon you, our treasure. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So we've, we've arrived at a moment in history, in a place in our culture where if I could attach a motto to it, I would say this, and I think you might agree with me. If I could say this is the motto of our generation or our age, kind of the, the values that our culture has right now, I'd sum it up in this phrase, keep an open mind or have an open mind. Think about this. One of the worst things you can say about a person or one of the worst insults they can hurl at you is to say you're closed-minded, right? Like that's a conversation ender. None of us want to be labeled the closed-minded person, right? Open-mindedness is celebrated. Closed-mindedness is condemned. None of us want to be associated with that. Uh, And this is about everything. It's about your political opinions. It's about your parents' opinion of who you're dating. It could be about whether you like sushi or not. People are like, keep an open mind. Or you're like telling them, just have an open mind about it. 
And again, to be called someone who's closed-minded, you can imagine what words follow that statement. You're a closed-minded fill-in-the-blank. This is bad at the moment we're at. This is such a big deal, that, and it has been even for the past couple of decades. Uh, the church that I grew up in was called the Methodist Church. That's what I was raised as. And the church, that, that church had a motto, and they changed their motto in like the mid-2000s or something to open minds, open hearts, open doors. I think because they were trying to kind of be savvy and, and adapt to the culture and the time and to try to, they didn't want to be seen as old-fashioned or antiquated or bigoted about something maybe they believed. And so they're like, open hearts, open minds, open doors. So even churches didn't want to be seen as closed-minded. The university is an especially sensitive place to this, right? So we're at a place where you're encouraged to keep your mind open. And I should mention this. There's a way in which being open-minded is a great thing. You've even heard these words from me in the past from up front or in getting coffee or lunch together or something. It's like, keep an open mind about this. It's good to be humble and to acknowledge the possibility that maybe you don't know everything. Maybe you do need to kind of withhold judgment get a little bit more data, think about it, get some more advice, and then uh, make a decision. Or in that sense, keeping an open mind is a great thing, right? But I don't think that's the way we use it all the time, in that humble, gentle, honorable way. I think the way we use, and our culture uses this kind of, this rule of you you need to have an open mind, the way we usually use it, I think, is, is more like this. Be open. Not keep an open mind, but be open, You be open to this idea or this opinion that I have or this thought that I have or this way that I am. You be open. You see how that's different than keep an open mind? It's like open yourself up to this. Be open to it. Accept it. Lay down your defenses. Set Set aside your own convictions and just swallow this, what I'm telling you or what this person is saying. I think that's how it tends to be used more often when we talk about keeping an open mind. Now, If this is true, here's the problem with this. And here's why we should question this. If your mind is always open, it can't keep out what it was designed to keep out. Your mind is like a door. A door that's open is a great thing, so long as that door can also close, right? Because a door that's just open and can't close isn't a door. It's a hole in the wall, and it lets in Thieves and friends, people who mean you harm, con artists, but also people who mean you good, right? It's the same thing with a mind, a mind that's just left open and can't close or close something inside of itself isn't really a mind at all. It defeats the whole purpose of thinking and discerning and investigating and questioning. An old... uh, English theologian named G.K. Chesterton said it this way. He said, merely having an open mind means nothing. The object of opening the mind, just as the object of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. So he's saying an open mind, an open door, an open mouth are all great things so long as they close back again. Like you don't jam food in your mouth and just sit there. The whole purpose of it opening is to shut again on something. I would say this passage, and I'll show you how in just a minute, this is the kind of stuff Paul's talking about in this passage, that your mind is a door. It's intended to open and let things in. It's intended to close on certain things and not let them in and to keep some things protected in your mind. 
It's a, your mind is like a hand. It's, a hope in hand is great if it closes on something. If my hand no longer grasps, it's useless. Let me cut to the chase and tell you where we're going. Paul is saying here, as a human being, I'm not just talking to Christians anymore or spiritual people, but as a human being, your, your mind, your heart was made to, to cling, to grasp God himself and to close. Your mind was made, in a sense, to be closed-minded to certain ideas that rival that, that compete, that deceive you, that pull you away from that. And your mind is to be open to him and closed to things that deceive us and pull us away from that things. And so, Paul says here in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies and empty deceits. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But at at the beginning, you have to at least see this. Paul is saying, be on guard. Guard that door. If indeed it's supposed to open and close, not just remain open all the time, you need to be careful what gets in and what stays outside. And here's the reason why. It's the first point over here. Our, our thoughts, our ideas, the thoughts we have inside, the ideas that are distant out there, they, they're not inside of us yet, but they're out there. Ideas and thoughts, they have consequences. Maybe you've heard that saying, ideas have consequences, right? Some of you who are a little bit more, you live life in between this here and this here, you're thinkers, you're analytical, you know ideas have consequences. Because sometimes a really bad one or a negative one or a self-accusing or self-hating thought gets in there and it just wreaks havoc on you. Or maybe a doubt you have about your boyfriend or your girlfriend or doubt you have about God slips inside and wreaks havoc. Ideas have consequences. Good ideas have consequences too. Some of you thought fall conference was a great idea and the consequence was you readjusted your schedule, you went. Some of you were like me who went through four years of college never going on a single one until after I graduated, because I was terrified of being out of town with a bunch of people I didn't know. Ideas have consequences. Thoughts have consequences. They're not neutral. And this is where I think we've been lied to, because the people who advocate, oh, just have an open mind about everything, what they assume is that ideas are all innocent, benign, little toddlers that can't do you any harm, and you're in control of them, right? It also assumes that you're able to tell the counterfeits versus the real ones, right? That's why they say, let everything in the door. What harm is it? What's it gonna, what, what bad is it going to cause if you are open to all of these different opinions or all of these different truth claims at the same time? Well, we know, you know, that ideas have consequences. Thoughts have consequences. They can emotionally heal you or they can emotionally destroy you. Thoughts and ideas can lead you to God or they can lead you in the opposite direction. But they're powerful. They shape you. And so, what are, I think, what, what kind of the advice that's out there today that I hear that you hear um, to let, every, let, let everyone in the door doesn't realize it's letting both the thief, the kidnapper, and the friend in the door. And this is why Paul says, be on guard. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And it's not accidental that he uses a word there that means to imprison or to to enslave you or to kidnap you. And again, nobody warns you unless they see that you're in danger, right? We talked this summer in RUF about the caution wet floor, or if someone comes up to you and says, hey, be careful, 
what do you, what do you immediately do? You look around you because you're like, well, they see a danger. Let me see it. Oh, there's a wet floor there. There's something I'm going to trip on. Paul rushes up to you and he says, be careful. He's talking to you. He's talking to each of you. He's talking to me. Which means look around you. There's a danger. There's a threat. You're susceptible to this. This isn't other people. This is you. Paul's talking to you. Be careful. Be on guard. Make sure that nobody takes you captive, that no one imprisons you is what he says. Let me bring this down to earth a little bit. Some of you have heard the name C.S. Lewis, and you know what that means. He's a really famous Christian writer from the 50s and the 60s. He lived in England. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book, some of you might have read, called Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is amazing. I recommend you read it. But what it is, it's a fictional account, a fictional dialogue between this master demon named Screwtape and his apprentice, I think it's his nephew, Wormwood, this rookie, novice, adolescent demon who really hasn't been around the block too many times. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to tempt people. He's just bad at it. And so Wormwood starts writing his uncle screw tape and asking advice. He's like, well, this guy's the expert, and so, you know, he's my uncle. I'm going to write him some advice. And so screw tape letters is the letters that screw tape writes to Wormwood, giving him the advice of how to better tempt and deceive People, they call them clients, um, and how to lead them away from God. And C.S. Lewis in all of these letters, they're brilliant, they're, they're, they're creative, they're surprising. Almost 100% of the, of the work that Uncle Screwtape tells his nephew to do, almost 100% of that work is all in the mind. This is the kind of stuff almost every letter includes. It's not so much do this to them, it's, it's, he talks like this, hey, whisper to your client that God has forgotten him. Whisper that if God remembered him and cared for him, there's no way on earth he'd be feeling the way he's feeling. Just whisper that to him. He says, suggest to your client that he's making way too big a deal about all this Christianity stuff. He's like, this is excessive. I mean, seriously, dial it back. You're getting a little bit too into this. Moderate. Have a balanced life. Just suggest that he has a more balanced life with a little bit of spirituality, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He says things like, Wormwood, raise the idea, just raise the idea that of course God couldn't possibly expect you to live in sexual purity because that's impossible. There's no way on earth God would ever expect you to do something that would be so excruciating and so demanding of your efforts. Of course he didn't mean that. Give in. He understands. Jesus could never save someone who did what you did. God would never bear patiently with someone who screwed up as many times as a Christian as you have. These are the kind of subtle suggestions. Here's my point. They're all mental. They're all thoughts. They're all ideas, right? It's not like burn the guy's house down or kill his dog. It's whisper into his mind this little thought, this little idea. Just whisper it. Don't be too obvious he'll recognize it. Just whisper it. Plant the seed of the thought there. C.S. Lewis was able to write this book because he understood that the biggest battleground, definitely in the Christian's life, and I'd say in the human being's life, is between this year and between this year. It's, it's your thought life. It's your ideas. C.S. Lewis knew that we were susceptible to these kind of deceptions. 
we were prone to let more than just friends into our mind. And Paul knew this too. And this is why Paul says these things. Paul, just like C.S. Lewis, knew that this is how temptation happens. This is where deception comes from. This is where unbelief comes from. It's in your thoughts. It's in your minds. So we've been talking vaguely about these thoughts and ideas, but what are they? That would be helpful to know, right? Paul says here something that we need, to, we need to make sure we don't misunderstand. He says in the middle of verse 8, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, you could be thinking, dang it, I'm a philosophy major. I got to go change. He's not talking about philosophy with a capital P like the field of philosophy. Clearly, what he means is there are out there and in here, there are worldviews, ways of viewing reality. There are Life philosophies. You ever heard that term thrown around? This is my life philosophy. There are explanations of, of, of the world that are directly opposite of what God's described in Scripture. There are opinions. There is spiritual advice out there and living in here that if you let it remain in your mind, it will deceive you. It's deceptive. The problem with deceit is you don't know when you're being deceived, right? It's a nasty thing. That's what deceit means, is you don't know what's happening, but it is. That's what Paul is. That's where his guns are aimed. Not philosophy, but these ideas about what life is about, what you're for, what God is like, what he's asking from you, what it takes to be made right with him. There's a buffet of opinions out there about all the and answers to those questions. Paul's saying, be very, very careful. Because some of these ideas, if you let them in, they will kidnap you and they will imprison you and they will enslave you and you will not be in control of them. They will be in control of you. So, let's get a little bit more specific, a little bit more specific. Each time, a little bit more specific. What are these thoughts, though? Yeah, there are ideas out there. Yeah, there's stuff that gets inside of us. But I would say this. Here's the short answer. What is a, a life philosophy or an empty deceit, or he says later down in verse 17 and 23, plausible ideas or hollow, deceptive ideas? What are those? It's any idea, any thought, any worldview, any opinion, any hunch, any feeling that decreases your confidence and your security in Jesus. It is anything that's inside of you or outside of you that serves to decrease or dilute your confidence and your security and your safety in Jesus. Now, no matter where you are in the spiritual spectrum, you're seeing how this applies to you because some of you perhaps were like many, me, were like everyone in this room up to some point in their life, drowning in deception, didn't even know it. And that's the reason Jesus is so implausible to you, is these things have not just broken into your house, but they live there and you're tied up and you have to listen to them. It's the only thing that makes sense to you are your doubts. The only thing that makes sense to you is your suspicion of God or your lack of confidence in him. But even for the Christian, even for the super zealous, passionate, raw, raw Christian, this also applies to you. Any idea that you let in or that's already in your mind that decreases your confidence in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Don't 
let it in. It will capture you. And it won't let go. So, that's the second point too, is our mind, our thoughts have consequences, but our thoughts also need a filter. And those are the thoughts, those things I just talked about, those are the things that your mind, if it wasn't broken, if it wasn't distorted by sin, if we could tell a real from a fake the way we were meant to, it would be able to filter those out. But we lost that ability. So sin also affects our brain, it affects our mind. We're not able to tell the difference anymore. And Paul is saying now, if you're alive in Jesus and you're awake to the Bible, to God speaking to you and telling you the truth, he says, use this knowledge that you've been given now. Use this life that you have to filter out anything that serves to decrease your confidence in Jesus. I promise you we'll get even more specific than this. I know we're still a little bit abstract. But those are the thoughts that you cannot give rent-free space to in your mind. You must evict them. You can't let them get in and then start building a home. You have to say, pack your bags and get out. If you're an analytical person, this is the hardest thing in the world for you to do because you think you're suppressing something. And you think, if I don't analyze this and think about it and investigate it more, what if this is the truth? Come to warn me. And so you let it stay. I let this stuff stay for way too long, and it destroys my insides, and it destroys my outsides. As you grow in maturity, as you grow, as God grows you, you will become more and more able to filter out, to recognize these destructive thoughts that keep you captive, to, to evict them. To say, you're not paying rent. You don't get a free spot in my mind and my thoughts. Get out. And you start arguing with these thoughts. That's the filter. That's the litmus test. Does this thought take me towards the light? Does this thought take me towards the God I was made for? Does this thought take me towards life in him? Or does it serve to take me away from those things? If it takes you towards Jesus, let it linger. Let it grow. If it takes you away from him kill it. If it points you anywhere else than him and your fight with sin and your battle with temptation and you're trying to figure out your future, if those thoughts direct you anywhere other than him, his word over you, his guidance, his love for you, kick it out. Evict it. Here's some really practical examples now to get very specific. What does this actually sound like in our brains? I just started listing some that I'm familiar with myself, which means things I let in, things that grab a hold of me and deceive me and mess me up and make me forget about who I already am in Jesus and what I already have in him. You might resonate with some too. First one, I was watching a Kevin Hart YouTube video today, so this came to mind. You do you, boo. And I'll do me. This is an idea you all know about. I know about it. It's very prevalent right now in our culture. And what it is, it's a, it's a, it's a philosophy it's of individualism. It's a philosophy of you be you and don't worry about anything else because you are supreme. Don't let anybody rain on your parade. Don't let anyone tell you that the way you are or what you're doing or what you've done is wrong. You be you, boo. And I'll do me. It's basically a no trespassing sign. Get off my turf. I'm not interested in what you or anybody else or God has to say about what I'm doing. 
So it's an expression, of, it's, it's self-expression. It's saying that my individuality trumps everything else. Me being me trumps and supersedes anything else. And so if God even says something that competes with the, with the way I think I am and what I want to do, guess what? That gets edited out. If a friend tells you something that is at odds with you getting to express yourself, and this is just me, deal with it. You edit that friend out or you edit their feedback out. I'm doing me, you do you, just go over there and do your thing, but don't bother me, right? This thought, I would say, is alive and well in your minds and in your heart as it is in mine, this individualism. And it leads us away from Jesus and it leads us into deceit. YOLO, we talk about this sometimes, you only live once, especially YOLO in college. You only are in college once. Best four years of your life, I can get serious about whatever, afterwards, which is a deceptive philosophy. It's an idea out there that if it gets inside of you, it can wreak havoc too. It can take you directly away from God, from friends, from functioning as a normal person because it goes like this. You better live it up now. When else are you going to be in this season of life, have the friends that you do, the liberties that you do, the schedule that you do, so you better soak up or squeeze out every last drop out of that sponge that's possible. There's always time later to do all this other stuff. I don't want to miss out on the prime of my life. That, when it gets inside of you, starts to look at God and find what he calls life, what he calls thriving, and you look at it and say, man, what a killjoy. Is he serious? Like, he's serious. This is how he wants me to live. This is college. When it gets inside of you, this is what it does to us. There's also this, this site, majority rules. And so if you have an opinion or a conviction or a belief or anything that's at odds with what the crowd thinks, then you need to suppress it because you're allowed to have it, but you're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to believe it for other people. You can just have it for yourself. And this is the screw tape thing I was talking about earlier. Hey, you can be a Christian. Would you just tone it down? Please tone it down. Like, I mean, this is a little bit over the top. Like, don't take this too far. Just a little bit of, just a little bit of this. Like, a little bit of church over here, a little bit of Jesus stuff over here, and then a little bit of this over here, a little bit of party scene over here, a little bit of this over here, a little bit of sleeping around over here, a little bit of, like, doing my own thing over here, a little bit of all these other philosophies and things over here. Just keep it balanced. Keep it balanced. This is plausible. This isn't crazy talk. This is stuff we believe. FOMO fear of missing out. Ruins every experience that you and I are in because we think the experience we said no to is the one we should have been at. So if you go to fall conference, maybe you're tempted to say, I should have stayed home. That test is going to get, is going to destroy me next week. Or maybe you stayed home because of that test and you wished you were there. Or you go to this party and you wish you were at that party. Or you had this roommate and you wish you'd said yes to that roommate. But everywhere you are, it says, Elvis left this building. He's somewhere else. And you're not there, so sorry, you're really missing out. FOMO leads you to spread the risk around. It, it says, don't put all of your eggs in any basket, but spread them around. So kind of be flaky. Have a loose commitment to a lot of things. That way, you're not totally disappointed. You at least get a little bit of fun here and a little bit of fun there. And what it ends up doing, where does that leave you with your friendships? When you're kind of like always like, yeah, I'll swing by if I have time and you never do, or I'll come to this and you don't. Or I'll be involved in that and you're not because you're always trying to keep your options open. What does that do to you socially? 
you're always the person who's missing the bonding that's happening, the memories that are happening, the life that's happening, because you're always on the run for the next thing. Happens with God too. Don't put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. What if he doesn't deliver for you? You don't want to get up the creek without a paddle. Spread the risk around. A little bit of him, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You don't want to double down just in him. Here's where it gets a little closer to home if you're a churchy person raised in the church. Spiritualism. Have you been raised at a church that said things like this that are very weird to some of you to hear and they're very normal for some of you? But have you ever been at a church that said, if you can't speak in tongues, you're not a legit Christian? Guys, this is absolute deception. What does that serve to do? Does that point you towards Jesus and who you already are and what you already have in him? Or does it point you back to yourself? I don't have this. What am I doing wrong? Turns Christianity into some weird formula, some weird arithmetic thing where if you get the variables right, it pops out this magical result at the end. Like if you can't do this, you're not a real Christian. Not in the Bible. It is deceptive. It will lead you away. If you let that thought take up residence in your mind, more of Jesus is not what you're going to get. It's more of you by yourself alone with just your own resources. People say, if you're not plugged into missions, you're not legit. If you don't go on this trip, if you don't do this study, if you don't read this book, if you're not going on staff or becoming an intern afterwards, man, you just must not love God. This stuff destroys people. Some of you are here because you've been hurt by this at other places. Paul's not kidding around. He's saying these thoughts, if they get in, will imprison you and take you captive. The last one is one that's very personal for me. It's circumstantialism is what I'll call it. And it's the voice of depression. It's the voice of unbelief. And it goes like this. God isn't near because he doesn't feel near. God isn't for me because he doesn't feel, I don't feel like he's for me. Jesus isn't enough because he doesn't feel like he's enough. And this is a mind game. Some of you have been in counseling because of this, on medication because of this. Some of you have been at your wit's end. Some of you have started contemplating suicide because of this. Some of you are very well-intentioned, and you're trying to figure out, is this stuff true or not? Am I, am I a Christian or not? Like, am I worth? Could Jesus love me in the state that I'm in or not? And you're trying to analyze these things, not realizing that every second that thought remains in your mind, it wreaks havoc. It's cancer. And it's got to be evicted and expelled and killed on the spot so that you can run back to Jesus. Which is where we end because it's where Paul goes with this conversation. Let me tell you a quick little story about my kids. We'll look to Jesus and we'll be done. If you buy what I've been telling you, which I think and I would argue is what Paul is telling you and what God is telling you. If you believe this stuff, if you buy this, and you're letting these thoughts into your mind right now, then you might be wondering, okay, Ben, then how do I filter out these things you're talking about that are both inside of me and around me? Things I'm prone to believe, lies that I'm prone to let inside. How do I keep that out? There's a couple of, couple of ways you could go about doing that, options. Number one is you could systematically list out in your little journal every single lie you've ever been presented with, 
And you could say, okay, just memorize these things and say no if they ever present themselves to me. Well, the problem with that is you don't know what the lies are and what they're not, right? The problem is also surely you're going to be presented with something you haven't experienced yet. Surely there's going to come a day where some new temptation comes. So that's probably not the best way to go. Uh, Maybe you could just have a reminder on your phone that every morning says, make sure you're not believing lies. But again, how do you know you haven't already swallowed some? So here's what Paul does and here's what God does. Let me tell you a story to make sense of it. Addie and Eli love, there's my two-year-old and my nine-month-old. They love to eat old, crusty, dust bunny covered, hair covered, gross food that's been hidden under the couch or lying on the floor that Ann and I have not seen because it's hidden somewhere under something. They love to find that stuff and slide that hand under and grab it out and eat it. They love it. It's like discovering a nice dinner meal, just you stumble upon it. They love it. They have the same dilemma I just presented you with. How do I keep them? How do Anna and I keep them from not doing that? Not being drawn to eat stuff that they shouldn't be eating. Not be drawn to uh, take things outside of them and ingest them that will not do them any good. It will just make them sick. It will hurt them. How do we do that? Well, yeah, we could go through every square inch of the house and eliminate all that stuff. Food's still going to fall down. There's some nook or cranny they're going to find. Um, and we just, we can't eliminate that. And the kind of house that we have, the kind of world we live in. So here's what we could do. We could feed them more. We could have snacks for them at any given time. We could increase the portion size of breakfast, lunch, and dinner so that they didn't get hungry and, didn't, and weren't enticed or called underneath the couch to get that piece of pizza that's been there for a long time. Anna's going to kill me after this. We have a very clean house, but it gets out of our view. We can't see it. <laughs> Y'all think I live in like a hoarder's pigsty. That's, I think that's how we could keep them from eating that stuff, is if they were full, if they were satisfied. And here's what I'm absolutely positive about. What God does with you, no matter whether you're outside of faith, whether you're outside of Jesus, you're not connected to him, you're not alive in him, or you are, you have looked to him by faith, you are alive in him, he has made you new. No matter where you are with that, what God intends to do with you is not to go around and systematically eliminate every deceptive lie. He didn't come around with the hammer of Thor and just smash it down in that moment. Clouds part, lightning bolt comes, clouds go back together, life goes on. He calls out the lies, but what he does is he takes you back to Jesus and he says, feed more on him. It's like fall conference. The reason it was so good this weekend is 10 minutes after every meal, the cook comes out and says, seconds. You're like, Yes! Because that was good food, but I wanted more of it. Do you know that God is a God who comes to you and says, seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths? Is Jesus infinite? Or is he like you? He had a beginning and an end. He's infinite. There's always more for the taking. Is God infinitely gracious, infinitely loving, or is he only like a certain percentage loving and a certain percentage gracious? He is infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely patient. 
And he has paid an infinite price to make you right with him. And so there's always more for the taking. And this is how God parents his people. He says, come back to Jesus. I'm just going to read this because we don't have time to talk about it. We'll pick it up next week. But he says in verse 10, you have been filled in Jesus. Filled, which means you don't lack. If there's a mark that says full, it's past that if you're in Christ. And if you're not, this is what God offers you freely even tonight. In him, verse 11, you were circumcised, which is not talking about something with your genitals. It's talking about something that God has done on your behalf, men and women. He has cut off your old life, your death, your guilt. He has separated you from it. That, that's, that ceremony, that ritual was a symbol of God doing that to your heart, to your life, separating you from this body of death, from this old you, this old life. He says, you have been buried with Jesus. You have resurrected with Jesus, which means you're alive forever, both now and in heaven. You're resurrected. And he says, you're forgiven of how many of your trespasses? The ones you committed up to the day you looked at Jesus by faith? No. The ones you committed up to the point where God's patience ran out? No. He says, all. Past, present, future. All of your trespasses have been forgiven because he canceled the record of debt that stood against you and accused you rightly so and said, you don't measure up. You have done wrong. You are guilty. That is what God took and nailed to a cross. That is what he destroyed when Jesus died on the cross in your place. And so the you that raised up with Jesus, guess what? Didn't have any of that on him anymore. He was clean. He was good. He was free. He was victorious. He was alive. He was innocent. He was pure. And Paul says that is the Jesus that you are connected to or that is the Jesus that calls you to himself even tonight, and says, why will you wait outside when there is grace for the taking here? Why will you stay away? Let's pray. Jesus, there's so much more here, so much more we need to come back to, but I just pray that you would let the memorable parts of tonight be for us to be on guard but the most memorable part for us to come back to you or to you for the first time in our hunger to feast on you, to enjoy you, to soak you up, to take of your forgiveness, take of your grace, take of your patience like Avon talked about. That's what I hope is the memorable part. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.